0: Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections.
1: Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news— often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis.
2: Hello, Ashley, and hello, future listeners in the future. I hope you know who the president (laughs) is, because we do not.
1: No, we are recording this at 2.30 p.m. on Wednesday, the day after the election, when we still do not know who is going to get to 270.
2: No, we don't. Um, And so that's going to impact the way the show looks a little bit. Um, But first, uh, we wanted to start with uh, what we're drinking. Right now, yeah, coffee. Yeah, coffee. Right more, now, there were definitely more <laughs> I had a uh, bourbon in one glass and coffee in the other last night. Mm-hmm. Um, but Same today, yeah, but it turned out to be a very late night, and so it's just coffee and the grace of God keeping us going today. I think.
1: Yep, and who are we talking to this
2: week? We got a really great conversation with Ibu Patel, who is the founder of the Interfaith Youth Corps and the author of several books, Acts of Faith, Sacred Ground, Interfaith Leadership, um, Out of Many Faiths. It's a really important conversation, especially right now.
1: Yeah, I cannot think of a better person to be talking to uh, today. Especially, we have just been through a few, you know, months, years that have laid bare the divisions in our country. And Ivo is someone who has been working across divisions for years. His interfaith work, you know, tries to engage in very practical work um, to to bring people of of different backgrounds together um, to build community um, and to and to work for social progress.
2: Yeah, and you know, some of my I was just thinking about this after the conversation. Some of my favorite shows that we've done of Jesuitical often are the interfaith ones. Uh, It's just something we like don't do enough. Um, And every time I, I feel leaving like, both, like, just like more human.
1: Yeah, and one of our most frequent questions uh, from listeners has been about inter interfaith uh, dating. So we we made sure to get in a question about that for Eboo.
2: Yes, um, but first, it's time for signs of the times.
1: Uh, kind of, <laughs> we yeah, we're reading right. the signs of the times today, um, and the signs of the times are, and we are in a state of limbo and uncertainty, and the idea of trying to break down the Catholic news this week. Uh, Just didn't seem quite feasible.
2: That's right. And, you know, we're obviously with where you were or maybe still are um, in the uncertainty about what what's happening, because this is a big historical moment and it's going to impact a lot of people. Um, So it does matter. So we I think we just want to say that your feelings are slash were valid, whatever they were. Yeah. And that we are praying for the country right now.
1: Yeah. No, whatever whatever the results are um we we need to pray for our country we need to pray for healing um so hopefully we'll know by then but and if not (laughs) we'll be right there with you uh praying yes and checking twitter right
2: so no signs of times today but we've got a really great conversation with dr ibu patel and we're still doing consolations and desolations after that so stick around (laughs)
1: Joining us from Chicago is Dr. Ibu Patel. Ibu is the founder of the Interfaith Youth Corps. Welcome to Jesuitical, Ibu.
3: I am thrilled to be with you. I love the Jesuits, and I'd never heard the word Jesuitical. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I thought to myself, how, how can you... What, what a what a lovely term. So here <laughs> I am, Jes,
2: Jesuiticaling with you all. Yes, <laughs> we're reclaiming it.
1: Yeah, it's known by many as, as an insult, um, you know, for... <laughs> Someone who, you know, is a bit too clever in, their, in the way that they make arguments. Um, but we think it's a good thing. <laughs> Uh, But before we dive into some Ignatian themes, uh, we want to acknowledge (laughs) the moment we're recording this in. It's it's the Wednesday after the election. We still do not know the results of that election. Um, So we know there's a lot of uncertainty (laughs) in what we're asking you and what your responses may be. So first, just how are you doing? Did you sleep last night?
3: I did not sleep that much. Yeah, no, Um, us either. (laughs) I went to bed around midnight. I... My wife uh, woke me up at 2.30. Evidently, I was snoring. So she gave me a nice, a lovely shove in bed. And so I checked the progress at that point. And then I couldn't fall back asleep because my wife was snoring. Uh, there was there was no reciprocal <laughs> lovely shove. So it was that...
1: unrelated to the election. <laughs>
3: and so I just... Uh,
1: Did you start doom scrolling through Twitter at that point?
3: Yeah, exactly. And then at some point, I just <laughs> gave up and went downstairs to watch <laughs> CNN. <laughs> I would like, I should say that actually I engaged in, uh, one of the, uh, uh, Ignatian spiritual practices, which I greatly admire. And I wish I had the spiritual <laughs> discipline to engage in, uh, during the extreme purgatory of not knowing who won in a, uh, a highly consequential American election. But instead I went downstairs to watch CNN.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, but regardless of what the outcome of this election is, I, I think it's fair to say this has revealed some pretty divisions that we already knew about. And, you know, one of the divides, I think, that's still strong is is a religious divide in this country. Um, so I'm wondering if we could just, like, you know, broaden the scope a little bit and hone in on some of your your interfaith work. Um, what have you learned from that that's going to be important for us to remember right now? So. I think that there's a whole set
3: of things that religious teaching offers to citizenship in a diverse democracy. One is uh religious traditions have this kind of capacious idea of who belongs. In Islam, it's it's all of us carry the breath of God. Uh in Christianity and other traditions, it's we are all created in the image of God, right? And so there's this sense that we are all sacred we're all sanctified so that's a that's a really central teaching religions also unsurprisingly have different doctrines right i of course consider the prophet muhammad may the peace and blessings of god be upon him as the final prophet is the seal of the prophets that's not the way baha'is and and uh, members of the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints view it these are genuinely different doctrine and religions have teachings about crossing divides and uh reaching out and working with not just your opponent but your enemy and of course you know Jesus's famous dictum love your enemy is central to that so all of these things help us live in a diverse democracy where diversity is not just the differences you like and there's really profound disagreements and cavernous divides which is exactly what we are experiencing literally at this moment
1: yeah and what You've spoken a lot before about how you're really not going to get the full picture of what's happening in the world in our country if you don't have some, like, religious literacy or have an idea of the religious landscape. So, like, do you think you can understand—yeah, can you understand what's happening in our country without talking about religion? Not at all. Of course not,
3: right? And, and uh, you know, I I, I liken it to, you know, going to medical school and not learning about the circulatory system. Mm. It's It's just— missing a dimension of forget spiritual life for a minute what we in islam refer to as as deen uh, it's it's missing a huge part of what happens in the material world from politics to you know the fact that uh uh something like half or more of america's civic life and social infrastructure is generated by religious communities one of the thought experiments i encourage people to do is imagine if you woke up tomorrow morning and every Religious institution in your neighborhood had disappeared. There might be a segment of the audience that thinks, "Well, you know, sad that you can't go to church to worship, but it's you know that you, you can worship in your home." Well, where's the AA group going to meet, and where is the city's food depository going to? Uh, who's it going to work with for food distribution sites, and who networks together to provide shelter for homeless folks? It is overwhelmingly religious community, so. These are the kinds of things we ought to pay more
2: attention to. That's not just a thought experiment. I mean that not to bring in the pandemic in this but it, that that literally became the reality um this year for a lot of places. Yeah. Um do you I I don't know. I feel this way being in media and out on the East Coast. I'm from the Midwest, but I'm at the point where I am default expecting most people I'm talking to in these circles to not have a religious literacy and I'm always like shockingly refreshed when they do (laughs) am i a little too cynical about um no i think i so i I would actually call it
3: um i you know in 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 this book i wrote called interfaith leadership i talk about a radar screen for religion and religious diversity just just paying attention to it it's it's like you know walking to the world and not seeing Trees,
2: you know, kind of want to. I kind of want to dig into a little bit of your own background, um, your college days, perhaps. Um, were you as attuned to the importance of the religious life of people or or interfaith work? Then, you
3: know, n- not until much later. And it, it was actually two things that that uh, um, kind of turned me. One was uh, I was very involved in identity and diversity work, and I would give my dad. You know, long lectures about people of color consciousness, mostly his lack of it. And, you know, he was kind of good-natured in listening to me uh, with all the wisdom I had acquired, uh, you know, with two years on a college campus. At one point, he turned to me and said, you know, you you can go seven clicks deep into Judith Butler's footnotes, but you don't even seem to look at the front page of the New York Times. This was the mid-1990s. He, he said, you know, the... the uh, the dimension of identity that's driving the world right now is religious identity, and you never mention it. So, the next time you want to lecture me, why don't you come to me with some solutions about how to address religious conflict?
2: Smackdown.
3: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And actually, the following week, Yitzhak Rabin, the Israeli prime minister, was assassinated by a man who told a judge that his accomplice was God. But there were lots of you know things happening in the world at the time related to religion, lots of terrible things like the Balkans War. Um, but there's always inspiring things. And that's the second thing that happened to me in college was somebody introduced me to Dorothy Day and the Catholic Worker Movement. And it was at a time when I kind of had my run being an anger-based activist, and I wanted to be part of something that... L- you know, did social justice work because it loved the world, not because it hated the system, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And the Catholic Worker Movement exemplified it, right? And they were so much more radical than my Marxist professors. And, but their radicalness was skin on the line. It was Jesus' radicalness. So, so that was a set of things that happened to me towards the end of college. And of course, you know, I'm not Catholic, although I have a great respect for the catholic tradition and so i kind of went on something of a spiritual search and that brought me into interfaith work i thought to myself wow here's all these different religious traditions present together talking about the ethics of their faith and you know figuring out ways to to cooperate and that's it was basically because interfaith conferences in the late 1990s when i was going to them were principally senior theologians talking that i was inspired to start an organization focused on young people acting.
1: What kind of work did you have to do within your own faith life to be ready to do the interfaith work? Because I assume you want to be grounded first, right?
3: Well, actually, this is kind of the story of my first book, Acts of Faith. Uh, And basically, my interest and commitment back to the Ismaili tariqah of Islam, which is what I was born into, really comes through my exploration of religious diversity and my involvement in interfaith cooperation. And by the way, I think that that is increasingly common, right? Like I call this an adolescent discrimination against the familiar. But basically, when I started getting interested in religion when I was 19 or 20 years old, for the first couple of years, I, I was interested in everything but my parents' practice of religion, right? And it just couldn't be cool. Pretty typical, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And at some point, when you, like, get into the poetry of different religions, Blake and Tagore and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, somebody's like, hey, man, have you read Rumi? (laughs) You know, and at some point, like, you just, at the hundredth time somebody says that to you, you pick up some Rumi. (laughs) And, you know, by that time, 21, 22, uh, I had gotten over um, wanting to reject my childhood, and I actually felt like this deep sense of pride that so many beautiful things had come out of my religion, and that's that is my story of reembracing Islam. And, and as I think it's a pretty common story, I think that there's lots of kids who grow up Catholic, go to Catholic universities because their parents want them to, are not interested in it at all, take a course on Hinduism or Islam or Judaism, and it kind of lights up a bunch of Catholic buttons within them. And they, you know, remember a whole set of ethics that they were taught growing up that were Catholic and they think to themselves, boy, I actually feel connected to this.
1: You just like gave my biography. <laughs> yeah. I, I went to I went to a secular college, um, but I ended up studying religious studies. And, you know, at that point, it, yeah, you're right. I was like studying Islam and studying Buddhism, a uh, little bit of Christianity. Um, but then it, I found myself it was at the same time that like my own connection to my faith deepened uh, profoundly
2: but why so. do you think that like is a a surprise for people because i do think there's this sense maybe that people think that if they are are, are looking at, at other traditions or studying other traditions it's somehow going to like steer them away from the one that they were raised in and there's like a, a fear or hesitancy uh, maybe from parents or even the person that's studying that they're going to lose a part of themselves so I think that there's actually surprise in lots of ways when
3: people talk about religion, right? There's people who are surprised that some people's faith journeys come through interfaith interaction. There's people who are surprised that, that some people stay within their faith for so long and feel inspired by their faith to reach out to people from other religions. I just think that in lots of parts of urban progressive America, people are surprised about anything related to religion. Mm -hmm. they're surprised when, when somebody talks about it in an inspiring way, Mm -hmm. which by the way, is like, you know, rule number one at IFYC, uh, religion can be inspiring. You don't have to be a believer. Plenty of people at IFYC are not, and in our network are not. Um, but we are committed to presenting religion as something that's inspiring. And that has brought the best out of people. And that has brought the best out of movements.
1: Yeah. You you mentioned before that, you know, before you got involved uh, in interfaith work, you you kind of dived into um, maybe what we would call identity politics and found that easier to talk about, which I think is pretty common on college campuses today. Um, well, I think we're about why, to have so a why, lot of identity
2: <laughs> politics discourse after this election, right?
1: Yeah. So why do, why do you think it's easier for, you know, people in certain circles to talk about those kind of identities and divisions and not religion and religious diversity?
3: Well, I think that there's at least two reasons. One is it is campuses really front a whole set of identity issues. And not religion. And we actually have hard data on this. IFYC uh, just completed what is probably the most ambitious study of religious diversity in higher ed ever been done. It's called Ideals, all caps. Um, if people want to just Google IFYC and ideals, you'll come up with it. And one of the things that we found out was that well over 50% of students said that they spent significant time focused on racial issues in college. Specific times focused on gender and sexuality and even political diversity. But under 50% of students said that they spent any time at all on issues related to religious diversity. So I think part of this is just that colleges are pushing this. And by the way, like I, I think 99% of students should be engaged in conversations around race and gender and sexuality in politics, right? Like that's part of the definition of being an educated person. But I also think 99% of students should be engage curricularly and co-curricularly around religious identity and diversity also And, and by the way there's so many implications to this right so part of what that means is if you connect with a religious tradition or if you're interested in exploring your spirituality but you are not in spaces that are asking you to tell that story well then it just becomes less salient to you right? I'm clearly not talking about Notre Dame and Georgetown and Wheaton here, but I'm talking about the vast majority of other places. I would say the second issue is uh, lots of us grew up experiencing racism. I certainly did. And and I grew up feeling ashamed of it and feeling like the problem was my skin and not other people's bigotry. And you get to college and you learn this set of terms, white supremacy and systematic discrimination and colonialism, et cetera, et cetera. And, You know, like I just I felt like I swallowed the pill whole. You know, and there's good reason for that.
2: What I'm hearing is is not that's not really the problem. It's more that perhaps a a broader discussion of religion and that salience in your life or college students' lives would somehow not complicate but inform in a more holistic way, like into becoming a, a fully formed human and citizen.
3: I mean, I absolutely think that if you're engaged in social justice work in college, but you don't have a sense of the interfaith dimensions of the civil rights movement or the interfaith dimensions of the struggle against apartheid in South Africa, it's just an incomplete education. And it's incomplete at multiple levels, not just at an intellectual level, but there's kind of a spiritual and emotional impoverishment going on there too.
1: Yeah. How is IFYC trying to you know shift what is happening on campuses around these issues?
3: Well, I mean, we have helped, you know, th- there's so much of this that's on, on on our website, ifyc.org, but we work at multiple levels. We, you know, we have this great platform called Interfaith America, where we are suggesting that we should be taking a step beyond the Judeo-Christian chapter in America's narrative around religious diversity, that we are really Interfaith America. Atheist to Zoroastrian, and that's something that we invite college students not only to read but to to write for. Um, we have helped to advance a field called interfaith studies, and there's now something like 300 courses on college campuses and in interfaith studies, uh, which is a field that's explicitly about how religious diversity plays out in civic spaces and uh, how interfaith leaders can nurture positive cooperation by engaging religious diversity more directly. And we do a lot of training that we call interfaith leadership training. We have this big, awesome institute in Chicago every year where hundreds and hundreds of students from hundreds of campuses come together and they do three days of intensive interfaith leadership training. So we work kind of up and down the campus to make campus, to help campuses become a model of interfaith cooperation and a laboratory for interfaith leadership.
1: Mm -hmm. Kind of switching gears a little bit. This might be beyond the scope of, IFYC. But a question we get a lot uh, from our listeners, uh, young people, is about interfaith dating. And I think a lot of people are kind of surprised that it's still a problem. Like they think, oh, we're modern. We're so tolerant. Like there should be no problems with interfaith dating. But from, you know, from what I hear from people's experiences, they're sometimes surprised by like the the real challenges it poses. So I'm wondering if you have any insight from your experience or from the work you do to speak to that issue.
3: I actually have a lot of insight into interfaith dating. Uh, one of the reasons is because I, I literally my, my, my first book, Acts of Faith, uh, it, it, it's semi-organized around the different women from different religions I dated before marrying my wife. And they were wonderful, warm, illuminating relationships. It, one was with a, a woman who was a Latter-day Saint. Uh, one was with um, a Jew. And one was with a Hindu. And I learned a ton about not just their traditions, but about appreciating religion, period. And part of what I also learned was it turns out that it's it, it was important to me to marry somebody who I shared a language of faith with and shared a ritual structure with and shared a code of ethics with. And so I learned a ton from my girlfriend's of different religions. And and at some point, I thought to myself, I am ready for the next step of seriousness in a relationship, which is marriage. And in that, I am going to be especially proactive about seeking to marry a Muslim woman.
2: And that's, you know, alhamdulillah, praise be to God, that's what happened. <laughs> which is not necessarily the path that everyone ends up following. Um, lots of people, I think sort of get to a point where they try to figure out a way to negotiate within the bonds of marriage, some of these ethical, ethical differences. Yeah. Um, are there any tips from like community building because <laughs> to building that, you know, tiny little community uh, between, um, partners? You know, there's actually a number of good
3: books on this. Uh, uh, Susan Katz Miller has a book on this. There's a book called being both, um, by John Sweeney. So I, I'm not an expert on this. Um, I know lots of people in interfaith marriages, but I am not, I'm not an expert on this. Um, My marriage is Sunni Shia and there, there are, and you know, there are trade-offs. I I don't want to use the word compromises, but where do you celebrate Eid? You can't celebrate it both at, you know, my Ismaili house of worship and also at a house of worship with my wife's family. Right. And so you choose one. And both my wife and I have a very kind of similar philosophy about the tradition, which would include a kind of ecumenism, you know, where like wherever you celebrate Eid, it counts and it's wonderful and it's beautiful. But I respect people who you know think to themselves, I actually need to celebrate it in a particular way at a particular place. I think that I think that there are beautiful challenges around this, and uh, I am not an expert on like Jewish Catholic marriage or like an atheist. Buddhist marriage, kind of thing. I think that that's it's an interesting challenge that that every every couple or family kind of figures out themselves. But there there are good books on this.
2: Yeah, and it's the approach towards the the sort of conflict resolution that I'm hearing is, you know, I'm I'm a newly married person, but it's it's one that I feel a lens that I've brought and that my wife has brought towards other other things that aren't really based in religion. Right, there are always going to be. Differences and tradition, and how you were raised, and how you want to raise your kids—that always involve some of that.
3: Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. You know, religion—it—it—it is super important, right? It—it doesn't have to be a problem, but it is something you should be eyes wide open about in in navigating this. So, you know, if if you're the kind of person who goes to church every Sunday, and your partner does not do that, that's a thing. And if you choose to have kids, that is that is even more complicated it is worth having the conversation about. It can absolutely strengthen a relationship and it, it, it complications can strengthen relationships and they can make them more challenging.
2: All right, we have, we have a couple more questions before we let you go, but maybe just in 30 seconds or less to our listener out there who's never really done any interfaith work um, at all and they're maybe a little nervous and a little uncomfortable and they don't know where to start, what's the best advice you would give them?
3: Ask yourself or a friend what is it that, what do you find inspiring about religion? And then ask it about a religion that you are familiar with because, because maybe you belong to it or your friends belong to it or, or your parents do, whatever it might be. And then and then be proactive about asking yourself uh, about a religion you're less familiar with. And, and just kind of go through the thought exercise. Go through the thought exercise of what would my neighborhood look like if every religious institution closed down? What would be missing? And think to yourself, not just the obvious ones, kind of, you know, the, the, the steeples, right? Uh, but ask yourself, where does the local, who built the local hospital? Who built the local social service agency? Where does the food distribution happen for hungry folks in this neighborhood? You know, so I think those thought exercises are, are important, but, but I would, I would do the thought exercise with somebody, with a friend from a different religion and have the, and have that conversation out loud but have it around things that are positive. What inspires you?
1: Well, one thing that inspires many Catholics is the communion of saints, which leads to our last question, which we ask all of our guests, uh, which is if you could canonize one person, Catholic or not, living or dead, fictional or real, who would it be and why?
2: Is Dorothy Day already canonized? She's on the way, but she's on the way. She's not saint yet, but... it's a it's a very popular choice, but we would love to hear your pitch for it.
3: You know what? I, I will I'll give you uh, I'll give you other people. I would say I would canonize James Baldwin and Woody Guthrie.
2: Ooh!
1: All right, let's hear the hear the elevator pitch. So
3: so much there's just love in their work, right? Like Baldwin was angry at America and he loved America and he loved black people and he loved white people enough to say, if you don't let go of your racism you will not be free either. And Woody Guthrie, man, like, you know, he wrote on his guitar, this machine kills fascists. And I remind people all the time that the machine's not a gun, it's a guitar. It plays songs. It doesn't spread bullets. And that's, that for me is really powerful. You know, that that we defeat the
2: things that are ugly by beauty. Amen. Well, Saint James and Saint Woody, uh, pray for us. Uh, Ibu, thank you so much for for all the work that you you do, and for for having this important conversation with us today of all days. Um, it really means a lot. Grateful to you all. Thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you. All right, now it's time for some housekeeping. Uh, Apparently a lot of you want to join this reading group because we have been getting a lot of new members of our Patreon community, which we are so grateful for. So special shout out this week to Meg Petz, Ashley Hobbs, Mike McFarland, Nate Burns, and Christine Fulcher.
2: Also, Jordan Donahue, uh, my beloved college roommate, uh, Dr. Joseph Westrich. Uh, Thanks, Joe. Um, (laughs) Matthew, Edelman, and Anna. Thank you all so much for supporting the show. Um, We're uh, recording this on Wednesday, so we're having the first reading group tomorrow. We're so excited. We're so looking forward to it. Um, And there's still time if you want to join that or just support the show in any way you can. Um, Hit up patreon.com slash americamedia.
1: And now it's time for consolations and desolations—the part of our show where we talk about where we found God in our lives this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Zach?
2: Um, I have a, a non-election-related consolation. <laughs> um, so I, I guess it needs a little context, and that is that I, I would say that as like a someone who works for a Catholic ministry, I have often used that—I um, won't say excuse—but um, as a reason to just sort of guard my time outside of work in the way that I engage with the church right like um I'm it's the same reason that a lot of people who have jobs maybe don't want to continue doing those jobs when they're on vacation or when they're on their off hours like nurses don't want to be nurses when they're on vacation sometimes some some people are Actually, nurses are superhumans, and often just end up doing it. Yeah. That's a bad example, but I think I uh, you get what I'm saying. Um, and so I, I'm pretty cautious about what I get involved with in even our my own parish, which I love. Um, but the, the men's group I'm in is started uh, volunteering at the Catholic Worker here in New York, um, which is the one that Dorothy Day founded. Um, and I was able to go out and do some sort of homeless outreach uh, with them this past weekend. Um, and it's the first time I've done any like relational, personal ministry like that, um, in a long time. And it was such a consolation to me to you know remind myself that like, Hey, you are still called to this. And like, this does bring you consolation and you are like, this is part of the Christian vocation and you can still, and I felt called further, further into that vocation instead of feeling like despair about, uh, gosh, aren't you a terrible person because you haven't done more um yeah. and so which is always a tricky line i feel like i'm walking with myself because i'm a head case but um <laughs> i was just like and it was just like super cool and super inspiring to be in um you know the place that dorothy day started um and still be ministering to the people of the neighborhood that she wanted to minister to what do you have ashley
1: i've got a desolation uh so you know in, in preparation for for this i i was praying and looking back on my last week and all I heard was like you were I was so busy like I was working all the time there God wasn't there I was just I was working sorry didn't have time to pray didn't have time for reflection I was just working um and and, and so there was desolation there I just like didn't see how God could be there and so upon reflection I was like okay so why like why don't you think god could be with you while you're working i mean you work at a catholic ministry um it seems like a pretty natural fit for for god to be there alongside you while you're doing that um and like in college i remember when i like i i very much found you know i was you know i was studying religion so it was like when i was doing my homework and doing my readings and writing paper it very much felt like a a prayer in some ways and i don't know and i don't know why i don't have that feeling right now at, at work um And so that was desolating, but, but this reflection, you know, that, you know, because I was forced to pause and reflect on it, I feel like I did hear this, hear this invitation to, to consider that, um, and maybe invite, invite God in, in some ways and not just see this as my like own private toil, (laughs) uh, over, over on my laptop.
2: (laughs) Do Do you think that there's some giant election sized, uh, reason as to why that might feel a little more desolating <laughs> than normal
1: it, it, there, there could be so so. hoping for a, a more uh, <laughs> prayerful and calm November and December <laughs> so
2: alright get yeah. us out of here
1: Okay, Jesuitical is produced by Maggie Van Dorn our editor is Noah Levinson faith formation provided by Father Eric Sundrop you can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical show you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.